Okay, well, we are in Joshua chapter 8, and we kind of set up um, the end of the chapter here by doing that, um, that video and a little bit of an introduction to the archaeological discovery here at this location. So I won't uh, rehearse that. In fact, I, I mentioned last week that there was going to be kind of a, uh, another um, uh, like press release kind of thing today, and so that was at 4.45, so it's probably still going now about this uh, archaeological discovery. Uh, if you're interested in that at all, you can uh, email me, and I'll send you the link to um, that YouTube video, but this is very, very recent discoveries at uh, Ebal of an altar that dates back to the time of Joshua, if you weren't here last week, a tablet that had inscriptions on it of cursing and of uh, the name of God, so it's very relevant to our study, and we'll talk about it a little bit more. But uh, now that we have some of the, um, the historical setting and even some of the visuals, we saw some of the, the pictures of that stony ground of Ebal, let's get into maybe what we are to learn from, again, these events that happened 3,400 years ago. Now, uh, we'll begin with Joshua. And just as a preliminary note, um, we have to think of, of who Joshua or, or who Moses is in relation to Joshua. So just again for context, I know we did this at the beginning, um, but Moses, why is Moses not here in the land? Why is he not in the promised land? Why isn't he leading the Israelites to victory? Why isn't he the one to lead them through the conquest? We even read passages that said Moses was in pretty decent health, though he was over 100 years old. He could have, but the reason he could not enter the land was not any sort of physical limitation or health limitation on his part. He died almost mysteriously, though he was in good health, just at the borders of the land. And we know that this was something supernatural because we know that God himself had told Moses, Moses, you're not going to be, enter, uh, be able to enter into the promised land because he is under the discipline of God. If you remember, uh, Moses, they're leading the people. There is a, a moment where he was supposed to speak to a rock, and it was going to gush out water for these Israelites wandering in the desert. But instead, Moses hit the rock, and uh, his anger and his impatience with the people was rewarded with um, this consequence, this judgment that he was not going to be allowed into the land. It's just something dangerous about where Moses was and his relationship to the people, that if he was the one to come into the land, it would have ended poorly and disastrously. So Joshua instead is in the providence and plan of God, the one to lead the people and take on the mantle of leadership, to take the Israelites as a wandering group, a tribe from their 40 years in the wilderness into a nation and a people in a land and they were going to do that. Uh, and while they did that, they were going to conquer nation after nation. Um, there's something special, I think, in the book of Joshua in the sense that you're reading about almost the birth of a nation. But you're also reading the story of Joshua and his personal experience with God. And how he was uh, an, trusting the Lord in, in the midst of all of these things. And uh, how he regarded his stewardship as a leader. I think we also said that uh, in the introduction that, that we, we are privileged to kind of get these glimpses of, of Joshua's relationship to Yahweh in these pages, even as we're going to get to just all kinds of like 
you know, battles, military strategies. You're going to get into inheritances and, you know, who gets what. So it's a really almost odd mix um, uh, of, of literature in Joshua. But one thing we don't want to lose here is Joshua's own place in that. Now, what Joshua does here in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, uh, I didn't catch this actually last week. So I'm kind of glad I had a second, <laughs> second look at this is Joshua is going to obey some commands. And it's very clear here that he is obeying commands that Moses commanded, but not necessarily God. There's a certain humility that's being shown here that all that he's about to do, it seems that these were things that Moses had wanted to be done when they entered the land. Now, in a way, of course, there's a conversion. So obviously what Moses wanted was what was in line with what Yahweh, God, wanted. But it's very emphatic here in verse 31 of Joshua 8, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded the people of Israel. Well, where did he command that? It's back in Deuteronomy 27. If you want to turn um, one book to your left, and uh, it is towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 27. And, and look at the first verse. <clears throat> now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. So who commanded this command to the people? Moses and the elders, and frankly, the elders were just saying, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, Moses, because what does Moses say? Keep the whole commandment that I command you. When you go back to Joshua, we'll see it again, but towards the end of Joshua 8, it's also again very clear that Joshua did all that Moses had commanded, and you don't see anything like Yahweh commanded Moses to tell the people to do this and do that. Uh, Moses very much gets the uh, ownership of this. Um, now, again, we ultimately understand that these commands were in line and in alignment with the will of God, but it's just interesting that they're attributed to Moses, both here in Deuteronomy 27 and in Joshua chapter 8. So what we're really seeing here, <clears throat> in a way, is Moses' priority for the Israelites once they entered the promised land. He knew that he couldn't go in. At this point, he knew he wasn't going in with them. So he's establishing, this is what I think is most important for you as you enter the land. You must do this to set yourself up for success. So it's very significant. I think it adds a lot more weight to it, knowing A, Moses was not going to enter the promised land, and B, then that these are his priorities and the things that he commands the people, obviously in alignment with God, but in a way, this is... Moses feeling a burden of what they must do, what they needed to do once they got into the land. And so we're going to call this two stones which form the foundation for the nation of Israel and also our lives. So there's going to be a reference to two kinds of stones in this command in Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua chapter 8, which is the fulfillment, two different kinds of stones which represent the foundation for Israel, and also for our lives, as given by Moses, one who was not able to enter in. This is what he desired from Joshua. The first stone is worship, specifically worship 
through sacrifice. This needed to be paramount and fundamental in the lives of the Israelites. And so what they must do after they had established this foothold into the promised land by conquering Jericho, by conquering Ai, is to go over to Mount Ebal and establish this altar, which we talked about last week. We have the actual physical remains of this altar that we can point to and say, yeah, there's like a very high degree of confidence. This is Joshua's altar. And Moses said, you must build this altar in verse 31 of uncut stones on which, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool and they offered on it burnt offerings to Yahweh and sacrificed peace offerings. So the first kind of stone, it's not a single stone, but of course many stones, is the stone that built the altar to prioritize worship. Now, just, just so you don't see any discrepancy, if you go to Deuteronomy 27, the order's reversed, actually. It emphasizes the law, which is going to be the second stone, um, as being written first, and then the altar built. Joshua 8, the altar's built first, then you talk about the law. But I don't think there's any, like, you know, spiritual significance to that. What's more interesting, actually, is this uncut stone. And they find these kinds of altars in Israel. They do archaeological digs. They find altars made of uncut stone. What's the significance of it? Well, we don't seem to have anything explicitly said. So I'm going to give you my take. Just understand it's my take. I think it, it has some legs to it, but just understand this is not explicitly stated. Um, but here's, my, here's, here's, here's sort of my thoughts. So uncut stones, meaning that they are shaped by who? God. So if I don't cut the stone, that means this is the way God made it, through the wind and the elements, through placing it at that particular place. This is God, not some random act. God is the one whose, whose stones these are. All right, uh, and and in, it's defined by God. The stones are shaped by God, defined by God. An altar made of such stones might be communicating something of worship of God must be God's way, not any way altered by man or made by man. You know, the the idea that if I crafted this altar myself according to what I liked, my preferences, my eye, you know, my design. Um, it's like making a religion, you know, that, that reflects me, my priorities. So I, I kind of like the idea that um, the uncut stones is saying, no, this, God made this altar. You, you, yeah, you put it together, but these are, this is God's altar made completely by stones that God himself, you could say, cut. And just maybe representing, you come to God, God's way. I also like the idea, and again, this, this might be making too much of it, uh, but these stones... They're being put as they are. And, you know, we come to God, to the altar of worship, just as we are. We're sinners. Uh, we don't need to clean ourselves up before you come to church or try to receive forgiveness from the Lord. You just come as you are, uh, uncut and everything. Um, but God can build us into, you know, a house of worship such as we are. So those are so just two little you know, thoughts regarding the uncut stones. But again, nothing explicit is stated, but uh, I'd imagine it's something like that. Just the idea that we ought not to mess with something that God himself has created. Okay, Uh, maybe more important, of course, is the centrality of the sacrificial system to worship for the Israelites. In other words, uh, the reason for this altar to begin with is that you might lay upon it a sheep or a goat or a bull, 
and sacrifice it in order to make atonement for sins. That is what an altar is. That is its function. It's not a decorative piece. It's not um, like an end table. It is intended to be used for um, the blood of animals to be spilt on it for the sake of sins. Now, Leviticus is a book that, um, again, was given during this time of Moses, and it described so much of the the uh, the rituals that needed to happen with the average Israelite wanting to worship the Lord, and a lot of it has to do with blood. <laughs> well, why? Because it's because Leviticus seventeen eleven says the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for on the altar, uh, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for life. So it is the shedding of blood that offers forgiveness, remission of sin. And whenever they were to slaughter an animal and shed its blood and sacrifice it on the altar, they were supposed to say, that should be me there. My sins are that serious. My sins are that grievous and affront to God that it would demand my life. And the grace of God is just that he would allow for another animal's blood to be substituted for my own. That's a grace of God. It's not a work. It's a grace of God that he would let the blood of an animal stand in the place of my, my own blood. And so if you think of just, you know, we're not used to this. Most of us, I don't think, grew up, you know, in a butcher's house or anything like that um, and are accustomed to the sight of a lot of blood and guts and, and animals with their skins, all, you know, all that stuff. We're not accustomed to that. But they were supposed to see that and every time think, that should be me, that should be me, that should be me. But as you and I know, they could get used to just, here's a dead animal, here's a dead animal, here's a thousand dead animals, and it means nothing in their hearts. And that speaks, again, of how awful and tainted uh, sin makes us in our own feeling, that we could see an animal, be killed, know that that is supposed to represent me, and feel nothing for that. So what did God have to do? What is worship now? We don't have an altar up here where we sacrifice a lamb every Sunday. And I've said it before, but that would change the whole kind of color and complexion of the church. If every Sunday morning we brought out a little lamb, just imagine the kids Oh, there's an animal at church today. And someone, we asked one of the deacons, just, you know, cut its throat, spill its blood. We're going to splash it all over the communion table and the pulpit. I mean, but that's what they did. That's what they did. And as, as shocking as that is to us, and again, they'd be more used to the sight of blood and things, but still they were supposed to say, that should be me. That should be me. We would get used to it. I can guarantee you that if that was our ritual, we did it every single Sunday, at a certain point, it would be normal. You know, it would be what we would do. But that cannot ultimately save us from our sins. And uh, as a Christian now, how do we apply something like this? Moses wanted the priority of the Israelites to be worship, to build altar and altar, sacrifice on it. Well, we don't do that. What does that mean for us? Well, if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you know that Jesus Christ was the picture behind all of those sacrificial animals. That Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for sin because he was not an animal or a goat. He was 
God in the flesh. And the blood that he shed was, in a way, holy blood. Not that it was like magical, you know, had magical powers if you could collect it or something, but that by virtue of his being God, by virtue of his being sinless, when he made sacrifice, his blood could cleanse us truly from our sins. Hebrews 9, 19 says this through 26. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have had to suffer repeatedly, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His blood satisfies God in a way that the animals and the sheep and the goats could not because they were just a shadow of the heavenly truths. Hebrews 10, 8 through 14 goes on to say, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The blood of the lamb and the goats, it didn't, satisfy God if the person offering it was just doing it because this is what we're supposed to do. This is what Israelites do. The blood of lamb and goats did not satisfy God, and the blood of lamb and goats could not sanctify the person. It couldn't make a person holy. It could only forgive their sins, atone for their sins when offered in faith. But through Jesus, the blood of the perfect lamb does satisfy God, can appease his judgment and wrath. And the blood of Christ can do something unbelievable. It can sanctify sinners. It can make us more like him. So when we talk about now, we don't build an altar. We don't sacrifice animals. How do we show the priority of worship? Well, our lives are now the act of worship. Romans 12 
1 through 2. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, we don't need an altar because we are the living sacrifice. We are the ones in every moment and every thought and every deed who are trying to honor the Lord. We don't call this the sanctuary. We try to call it the auditorium. I sometimes call it the sanctuary too. But that is to suggest that there is a place that is holy in which you must worship. Whereas, because the Holy Spirit lives us, it lives in us, we each are an altar. We each are a temple. We each are a place where worship must occur. Uh, like MacArthur's quote, he says, worship cannot be isolated or relegated to just one place, time, or segment of our lives. We cannot verbally thank and praise God while living lives of selfishness and carnality. That kind of worship, uh, kind of effort at worship is a perversion. Real acts of worship must be the overflow of a worshiping life. As God warms the heart, with righteousness and love, the resulting life of praise that boils over is the truest expression of worship. In other words, worship is the ordinary lives we live that is in light of eternity, the extraordinary. That God is not seeking worshipers who will worship on this mountain or that mountain, as he told the Samaritan uh, woman, but he is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Where can you worship in spirit and truth? Anywhere, anytime. Lying down in your bed, on the bus, in the middle of class, at church. You can find yourself worshiping in spirit and truth in how you make decisions about the future. You know, when you're making plans about vacation, when you're looking at your, you know, wallet and the moths come out, there's a way to worship in spirit and truth in the midst of all of it. The first priority that Moses wanted to make for the Israelites was for them to realize worship matters. Worship is necessary. And in order to worship our God, you need to be sinless. And for them, that meant sacrifices. That meant animals and blood of goats and sheep. But for us, it means we enter by the blood of Christ. We worship through what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has done, and now our whole lives are worship. That is the first stone. The second stone, which forms the foundation for Israel and our lives, is the Word of God. It is Scripture. Go, going back to Joshua. It says in verse 32 of Joshua 8, And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded at the first. So notice again, who commanded it? Moses. This is Moses' priority, to bless the people of Israel. 
And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Deuteronomy chapter 27 adds the details that Joshua is to get very large stones, cover them with plaster, and then, uh, which makes it easier to write on, and write it in the presence of all the people. So they were to witness this thing being done. I don't remember if I mentioned this or this was mentioned in the video we watched last week, but they did find plaster at this, you know, altar location, which we were talking about. They did find bits of plaster there. So again, just more corroboration. That's almost assuredly the spot where, um, where Joshua or this altar was built. Um, and when we talked about that little, you know, tiny tablet um, that had the writing on it, that is significant also because that demonstrates that those early Israelites were in fact literate, had a writing system, and could read, which is monumental because there was a time in very recent history, scholarly consensus was that there was no way the Bible could be as old as it was claimed or the Israelites could be the kind of people they, they could be because there was no um, uh, writing, because they weren't literate, they were just these wandering nomad tribes, and there's no way they could have had any kind of writing system. And to, to a certain degree, some you know, scholars didn't even think writing may have even been invented by this time. And so the fact that they have that, that little tablet at the location where Joshua is said to have written a copy of what Moses had written, which means that, that, that Moses had a writing system, where they found all of this at this location is so significant, all right? It, 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 it just undermines, you know, a lot of, of what scholars said uh, could not be possible. You know, the, the Bible's description of history just could not possibly be true, and it completely undermines all of those assumptions. All that to say, all that to say, from the very beginning, the Israelites were people of the book. That is a true statement about them. I mean, it... it it's always been the case that they were people of the book, uh, that, that they coincided the word of God, the prophetic word, with some kind of written text. Now, again, we don't want to be too beholden to these very fine Bibles we have that are sewn very meticulously on, on very nice paper and all those things. They would have been using stones and tablets, maybe uh, if they had a chance, some animal skins and scrolls, uh, but paper wasn't a thing for a while. So you have to think, when, I, when you think of Bible and the Word of God being written, this is a, a very unique kind of invention. Um, but they did, and you can understand it was probably a lot more work to create copies of the Word of God. So they, that would have been an act that was very revered. So for them... The word of God was so important, like, so important. It's, it's like worship. They're like worshiping, watching Joshua. Now, was it literally Joshua writing all of it? Maybe. I mean, sometimes you get the sense that maybe this is a collaborative effort, but everyone is supposed to be involved watching the word of God being copied. Now, 
Again, commentators, like, well, was it like all the first five books, you know, Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Um, or was it just like the curses and, and the blessings? Um, it would have been a lot of tablets, let's just say that, if it was the whole Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Maybe it's just Deuteronomy, because it t- says specifically here, um, the book of the law. So sometimes I can refer to the first five books. Sometimes I can just refer to, let's say, the legal portions of it. We don't know. Um, if it was the whole thing, it would have taken a while. And the whole time would have been worship and awe of the word of God. Maybe it was some smaller segment. We don't know. But what we know is every moment of them watching the word of God being written was worship. And then when Joshua read it to all of them, it was worship. It was, it was important. It was foundational and fundamental for the Israelites to acknowledge and experience. The word of God was the second stone upon which the nation was to be built. Now, <clears throat> what was the point of writing all of this down and the people watching it and, and understanding they were literate and could read. You know, they got these big old, you know, tablets. It's, it's funny because every year we get a notice about putting up the California and United States uh, laws about workers and employees. So, it's, you know, we, we, we get a, a little a scroll like this big. It's in our office and the writing, you know, is like really tiny. But it's by law required we got to have a copy of that, of that up. Um, this is like, you know, the word of God, you know, almost kind of like that, you know, everyone should read this and understand this, know what it says. This is an obligation upon everyone to, uh, to, to read this and understand. And I think there's a few reasons, um, to do this. And from the people, people would understand that this was God's word and not man's. Joshua was not writing here his own thoughts. They knew, they could see, since it was a public process, that he was taking what Moses had received from the Lord, and he was not altering it or changing it in any way. That what Moses had written, what God had revealed to Moses, and Moses wrote down, that's exactly what Joshua was writing down. Because what's the option? What, what could happen? Hey, guys, um, you know, if I told you, hey, everyone give me your Bibles. You don't need them. I'm going to make sure I make a really good copy of my Bible but don't watch me do it, and I'm going to give it to you, right? So just trust me. And what, I, what might I do? You know, maybe a few things here favorable to Pastor Yuri get slipped in there. Maybe I alter a few things I don't like. Maybe some stuff like Thomas Jefferson famously made a version of the Bible that was 84 pages long because he cut out, literally cut out with a razor and glued the parts he liked. So maybe if I do the secret sneaky process of communicating to you, you know, the word of God, I take stuff out, I put stuff in. How would you know? Versus if, if I were to say, here's the word of God, and you have it too. You know exactly what it says. You saw the process. We are all accountable to it. I did not alter it. I did not change it. This is in stone. You'll know if I edit it because there's going to be, you know, it's not like a computer, just hit the delete key. If I mess up on this stone, right? You're going to see like a big scratch out and then, you know, me, me try to fix it. Uh, there's famously uh, a new uh, King James Bible that said, thou shalt commit adultery. 
okay? It's a very infamous Bible. Um, I think they called it like the Sinner's Bible. It was one of the early productions, you know, and, um, <laughs> you know, that y- you would have to put in like a knot, you know, in there and, and edit it. But if it's in, you know, that, that's just paper, but stone, you can't alter stone. It'd be very obvious if it was defaced. So Joshua, doing this in public, on very large tablets that everyone is expected to read and see, this is a way to communicate that God's word is over all, that we are just submitted to it from Joshua down to the smallest child. Everyone was there from the sojourner to the men, the women, the little ones, everyone was there. You see, you get that sense that this word of God, it is over all of us, unalterable, unchangeable, just like God. It is meant to endure like stone, again, in the altars. We have still the stones to this day. Now, we don't have the exact ones that, you know, that the word of God was written on. That'd be an amazing discovery if we could find pieces of that. Uh, but the idea is of, of permanence, that we're writing it on stone because we think this should last into eternity. And so all of this imagery is wrapped up. The priority of God's word was to be foundational and fundamental for the entire nation of Israel. And it's not any different for us today. It's still true. And we do talk a lot about the, the certainty of God's word at our church. And it's for the same reasons. So I'm going to just, for sake of time, I'm just going to go through these very fast. But um, so you don't have to turn there if you want to just listen. That's okay. But First um, Peter one twenty three tells us that we have been born again by the word of God. That it's the word of God that regenerates and the word of God that brings us to salvation. You see the same thing uh, in, in Acts. In John 17.17, 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. <clears throat> so the word of God is that which cleanses us and makes us uh, um, holier. I mean, in that miracle of sanctification that any one of us could grow in Christ-likeness and godliness, the mechanism that God uses is his word. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, the, to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God holds us all accountable. And, and, and I have nothing more I could add to that, nothing I should take away from that if, if this is true. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, where all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for uh, teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All you need to do every good work is the God, the Holy Spirit-inspired, God-inspired Word of God. And you are equipped for every good work? Yes, that's why it's fundamental. That's why it's foundational. And, and you see again back in Joshua 8 that Joshua read the entirety of the blessing and the curse. If you want to read those, you go to Deuteronomy 27, who won't go through the whole passage but we said before, a lot more cursing than blessing. But he read the whole thing. He, he didn't think he could edit it or alter it. He didn't think that he could jump around, just find the passages he liked, avoid the passages that were distasteful. 
in, in Joshua's mind, his duty, his obligation was to declare to them the whole counsel of God, just like Paul said, Acts 20, 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So he needed to tell them the good news and the bad news. He needed to tell them blessing is coming if you do this. But if you turn away from the Lord, here's what God must do to those who would shirk their responsibilities, sin against God. If you believe the word of God is foundational in your life, likewise, we need to believe the whole thing. You need to listen to pastors who take into consideration the whole counsel of God's will. You need to belong to churches that aren't avoiding certain passages or emphasizing others in order to win a crowd or be seen well of or thought well of by uh, the, the culture. We must be completely devoted and committed to say God's word, nothing more, nothing less, just like Joshua. And in a very public way, again, to, to write these things down, in the public view of all the people, was such, it's such an amazing, iconic thought because it, it says exactly what you need to know. Joshua didn't think he was above God's word. Joshua thought that this is all that they needed. Joshua thought that this binds every conscience and soul. And these are basic truths in which all of us need to ground our lives when we stop at Joshua chapter 8, they are at the foot of this mountain, or these two mountains. We talked about it last week as well. Gerizim and Ebal. There is two, just like there are two stones, there are also two mountains. The mountain of blessing, the mountain, mountain of cursing. Deuteronomy 27, 11 through 14. Moses' writing says this. Deuteronomy 27, you don't have to turn there. (laughs) That day, Moses charged the people saying, when you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice and with the cursings. You have to imagine the scene here of all the people of Israel turned out and the Levites are going to declare to them, bind all of their consciences to these words of God. The sojourners as well as the native born, the the women and the little ones. You could say this is a truly inclusive gathering, but it's also a statement of corporate accountability inclusivity is okay as long as there is accountability. This was not an opportunity to say. No one had the choice to say, hold on, I don't think I want to be a part of this. I I was with you the whole way, uh, you know, the the wilderness thing, you know, the Egypt thing, but I, I want to get off the bus here and I want to do my own thing. I want to have my own private relationship to God. You know, I don't, I don't like the kind of corporate accountability where it's like a wee, 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 because, um, you know, I think actually I know my neighbors, they're not good people. So if I, my fate is kind of tied to theirs, I don't want that. There was no option like that. It's like that way throughout the whole Old Testament is they get kind of lumped together. I mean, there's got to have been some people in the northern kingdom of Israel that were decent, 
but they get characterized by their wicked kings and their evil kings. There must have been some decent folks up there, but you kind of get this very broad brush that they were all worthy of judgment. And so no one was able to use this excuse. Well, I did the right thing. Uh, I don't care about anyone else. So uh, God, you know, you need to treat me differently. Well, buddy, you were still going to get sent into captivity by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. It wasn't going to fly. Just like Achan's sin, remember, created consequences for the whole nation. People died because Achan took some stuff he wasn't supposed to take. Even though they didn't do anything wrong. But it's a demonstration that sin's destructive power is so dangerous, is so, uh, is so um, unmanageable that we need to come together to root out sin. We need to come together to build each other up. Again, you're responsible for your own sin. Don't get me wrong. And Achan ended up being, of course, like dramatically judged for his sin. But there's also another sense in which sin is just so insidious, can spread so rapidly that all the nation was, was gathered there together to take a mutual accountability. Well, is that true of the Christian life? You know, we're not, I'm <laughs> going to go up to, you know, San Diego Hills, you know, up here, and then uh, you guys stand on this side, you know, Pastor Chris on this side, you know, being on the other mountain, take half the congregation, this one, half the congregation, and, you know, pronounce blessing. We're not going to do that in order to create a sense of mutual accountability. Is there even a sense of mutual accountability that we see in the church? Well, we do. In every one another, we see the sense of our uh, indebtedness, our union, our community, our communion with each other. And there's so many passages we could go to um, 1 Corinthians 12, talking about the body, Ephesians um, uh, 4, we, we mentioned, I think, last week about uh, one baptism and one spirit. Like, those are all passages that bring us together into one body. Uh, I will just mention, just to marry worship and the word together, at least a couple um, passages, but understand the whole New Testament paints the picture of the church as such an organism, as such an entity, even closer than the ties that, that those children of Abraham had to each other is the ties that bind us because it's the blood of Christ that unites us. So we are closer than a nation. If they had accountability as a whole nation to each other, to watch out for each other, to, to, to root out sin together, to grow as a people together, us more so. But uh, Colossians 3, 16 and 17, Paul reminds the Colossians of this attitude of corporate worship and the word, our altar, our stones. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we have exactly tonight in our singing, in our praying, in our teaching, exactly the, the priorities of worship that Moses gave to the Israelites 3,400 years ago. Worship by the sacrificial lamb 
through the word of God under which we are all accountable. That hasn't changed. Uh, that, that, in a way, we are living the fulfillment of it. It seems so drastically different, doesn't it? We're sitting here indoors, air conditioning finally. We're in nice comfy chairs. They were out in the desert in the heat, building these stone altars. You know, animals are dying and they're, they're, they're praising God and all that. This is such a, this is almost worlds apart. But it isn't because we're worshiping God through the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, bringing ourselves under the teaching, the priority of the word of God, trying to live lives that, that, that matter, that are in obedience to God, not in our own strength, but in the power he has given through the blood of Christ. No Gerizim or Ebal here, no altar, no stone tablets, but the principles, the priorities, still the same. We are united with them and united with every believer who has come before us in these um, priorities that Moses made, in the altar, in the word, um, now in Christ, and in the revelation that has been completed here uh, in the Bible. And so it's, to me, it's a neat thing to connect ourselves to them in that way. Now, if you're not a Christian, I, I hope that something of what has been said today might, might draw you to him. I, I mean, really, I don't think it's too far a thing to look at an archaeological discovery and say, wait, that could possibly mean the Bible's true. And if it's true about that, what else could it be true about? Maybe it's true about my, my sinful heart. Maybe it's the sacrificial system that our, our sins are so grievous, they must be atoned by blood. If any of that has struck a chord in your heart, you're feeling any, the least of conviction of, of these truths, and, and you want to talk about it, please come and talk to me. And again, I know like all of you here, uh, but for those of you who might be on the internet or, or whatever, reach out to someone who knows this Jesus and talk to them about these things and, and turn uh, towards the Lord who made you and and loved you and sent his son to die for your sins and believe in him for eternal life. Heavenly Father, thank you again for um, these priorities of Moses that are also our priorities, I hope, my priority. Uh, Lord, it's good to know that you are consistent. It's good to know that you haven't shifted the goalposts on us, but that you've always wanted our hearts and that the only way our hearts could be ready and right for you is in, in, in having a heart transplant through Jesus Christ who gives us a new heart. So thank you again for him. Thank you again for um, the body of Christ where we can now um, have this worship together uh, and worship you together. I pray that you'd bless the food and the fellowship that we'll have and uh, make it something that glorifies you. So thank you, Lord, for all of your mercy and grace towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well,